we stole his name from the Bible. Shame on us. We're going to be looking at the book of Joshua tonight. Really, we're going to look at the first chapter. I, I kind of have it in my notes to get through the entire first chapter. We'll see if, if we actually make it all the way through all 18 verses. But we're going to look at what does it mean to live in the promises of God's word. Because we all know intellectually, we all know conceptually, that the word that the, the God, that the Bible has promises for us. We can all say, yes, there's promises in the Bible. How many of us are living by those promises? That's a different story. And we can all look at our individual lives and we can say, okay, Lord, what am I not believing? How am I not believing it? And how is it seen? And we're going to start all the way back with Joshua. Because if you don't know it, you're going to find out now, Joshua is actually the first character, the first person in the Bible that carried the word of God. We're going to see it in, in the 8th verse of chapter 1 that he actually carried on well, parchment, on papyrus. He actually carried the written word of God, the Torah. First five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy as we know them. He carried them in. And so I'll give you guys kind of, uh, I'll, I'll ruin one of my points now because it's all right. We are just the same as Joshua. We have the word of God that we can carry with us. We have the promises of God that we can live and that we can believe in. And we are entering into those promises every single day. So as much as we're going to be looking historically at a man way back in the Old Testament, it applies just as much to each of us today. So before we even start with verse 1, all my mentors and the guys that disciple me over at the Bible college would always say, context is king. If you don't understand the why, if you don't understand the what, it doesn't matter what the message is. We're going to look at the context. I'm going to try to set the scene. We're going to kind of, you know, think of it as a play. We're going to set the stage for a minute. Joshua is not about Israel coming to an end of something. It's not about the end of the wilderness years. It's not the end of the, those 40 years of, of refinement, of trial. It's not about finishing something. It's about beginning something. Joshua begins their entering into the land of promise. It is not a land that they deserve. It is not a land that they have earned. It is a land that was promised to them as far back as Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. When God spoke to Abraham, get out of this country. Go away to a land that I'm going to show you. We're entering that land tonight. So it's not about finishing something. It's about beginning something. They're going to enter it. They're going to conquer it. And they're going to occupy it. And this little piece of real estate that we know today as Israel, fun fact, it's about the same size as New Jersey. It's going to set the moral compass for the known world at that time, and it still has an impact today. It's a tiny piece of real estate. Now, my wife and I had that we were, we were completely blessed last November um, as kind of a, a prequel to celebrating our anniversary. We were able to go to Israel. We went to Jerusalem for three days. Um, Someone blessed us. It was an amazing time to go. And it really brought to life a lot of the promises of looking around and walking. Now, obviously, the Jerusalem today is not the Jerusalem of the first century. It's kind of been knocked down a few times. But you get the picture of, of the, these, these places in this, this land of promise. You walk around there and you see and you experience and you feel the spiritual and the moral oppression as you go from quarter to quarter. My wife, who was very spiritually sensitive, we would go from the Armenian quarter to the Jewish quarter to the Christian quarter to the Muslim quarter. And where we went, she actually she could sense a different level of oppression. 
And it, it, this is nothing, this is not a, a statement of bias or anything, but when she was in the Muslim quarter, we were there. I took her there on purpose because, again, cultural experience. I took her to the Muslim quarter right after the evening call to prayer. So we walked to the main street. It's actually the, 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 the street is the, the market of the cotton makers. Okay? We were on the street, and the, the, this th- these throngs of Muslim men were leaving Temple Mount. And it was very overwhelming for her. That she was probably the only woman out of these thousands of people, probably the only woman, and very, very difficult for her, very oppressive for her. The interesting thing was, when we went to the Christian quarter, she still felt a lot of oppression, a lot of, this isn't comfortable. Where she found the most peace was over in the Jewish quarter, actually. It was very amazing to me, where, as we were walking around, where she was like, you know what, can we, just, can we go back a few blocks this way? And I was like, sure, not, not a problem. But being able to even be within the old city, within the city walls, and experience the different aspects of the moral guidance or the moral compasses that people are still living by today. Going to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Orthodox Christianity says that's the place where Jesus was crucified, where he was buried, and where he rose. There's the, the, the stone of atonement. And you would see people laying on it and praying on it. And Orthodox Christianity says that is the stone slab that Jesus' body was prepared before burial. So you see people laying on it and kissing it and crying on it and weeping on it. And it's like, people, that's a piece of stone. He's not there anymore. But yet their lives are so inundated with what they can touch and feel and smell and believe with their eyes that they're missing the promises. The promises of a risen Savior who's no longer bound by a cave or a stone slab. And so it's an amazing thing to look at when we look at his promises and the fulfilled promises, not only in Joshua's life, but in our life today. They entered with a book. I already said it. They entered with the Torah. Verse 8 says, it will not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it. You shall do it. They had to have something to do. We'll get to that in a minute, some, uh, some more in a minute. But they carried something in with them. They carried the Bible, what we would say is the beginning of the Bible. And with a standard unlike any other people that have ever lived up until that time on earth, they were to live in a way different from the rest of the world. They had a standard written down that they were to live by. It was to be different. They were to stand out. They were to be weird. In today's world, standing out and being weird is almost unacceptable. You need to be tolerant. You need to go with the flow and you need to blend in. They were to stand off the canvas of this world and something was supposed to be so different that the people of the world would say, who are they? And why are they who they are? I was uh, last week at a youth group, we were talking, and, and I had a quote by D.L. Moody that it just, it, it resonates with me so much that I, it just, it's one of those things that I, that I, I hold on to. And the, the quote is this, out of 100 men, one will read the Bible and 99 will read the Christian. And if someone is reading your life, what are they reading? If someone is reading my life and looking at my life, who are they seeing? Are they seeing a spiritualized version of my flesh? I really hope not. Are they seeing the resurrected king? I sure hope so. But 99 will read the person, will read the man, and one will read the Bible. We have a throng of people entering into this land whose lives are going to be read by its inhabitants. Who are they seeing as these people step into this land? They were to be the priest of the other nations of the world. And there are things going on here in these chapters that we, that we still deal with today. We all know that the word of God is living 
It's alive. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And the things that Joshua had to deal with with the people of the land of promise or the people of Canaan are a lot of the same issues we're dealing with people today. Moral issues, theological issues, cultural issues. It's still happening today. It's just as relevant today. Now that's kind of a geographical setting of the scene. Let's, let's actually talk about the man because we need to understand Joshua before we can really get into this because I can just start reading it. It's like, all right, it's Joshua. Go into it. The man himself is quite remarkable. If you skip way ahead in chapter 24, we will read, you would read that he died at age 110. Okay, so he was 110 years old when he died. That means, doing the math backwards, he would have been somewhere between 5 and 10 years old when Moses killed the Egyptian and fled to Midian. He would have been five to ten years old back in the beginning of Exodus. That means he grew up in Egypt as a slave. That means he grew up watching his father come home from making bricks with whip marks on his back. He grew up as a slave watching his mother and his father be treated and living such lives. He was part of those people who cried out to God, and God through Moses responded and said, I have heard their cries. He was part of that group. This man was a slave who grew up under tyranny, under persecution, and in tremendous adversity. Now, we think at at times today we experience persecution and adversity, and granted, there's still persecution heavy in this world. Personally, I can't say I've experienced it, but I've seen it. Again, I've, I've, I've shared here before as we've come and gone off the mission field about in 2015 when the refugee crisis hit, the, hit Eastern Europe and, and speaking with Muslim refugees that they would come to us and they say, I had a dream last night about a man named Jesus and I don't know who he is. And we would tell them about him. He goes, stop talking to me about this man. If you tell me about this person, my family will kill me. If you tell me about this man, I can't ever go home. If you tell me about this man, I have lost my family. And others would say, I heard about him, or he came to me in a dream, and I want to know about him. We would tell things about who Jesus was, and they would say, I've heard about this man, but I didn't think he was real. Different sides of the stories. My wife, her roommate, a long time ago, I'm trying to remember, 2003, 2002, her roommate had, a, it was a, in, her, in her wardrobe, she had a balloon, kind of like one of those, uh, um, you know, one of those helium balloons, but on it had scripture written in Korean. And the story is, and even today, I have some friends over there who are missionaries over there. Christianity is still illegal in North Korea. So in South Korea, what they would do, they would get these helium balloons, and front and back, they would cover them with scripture. Get a permanent marker, a paint, and they would cover them with as much scripture as they can. And they'd go as close to the border as they possibly can, and they let the balloons go. And as the balloons floated over to the other side of the border, Christians on the north side of the border, they would, you know, something, get the balloons out of the air, memorize as much as they could of that, and then burn it. That's how they get Bible. That's how they would receive the scripture. And I think about that, and it's like, all right, if we did an inventory of how many Bibles all of us in this room have collectively in our homes, it would be more than most of the world put together in some places. And I think of that as, okay, I, I have my Bible here, I have, I have my device with multiple versions, I have on my phone, I have my, in my office, in my house, And these people are literally memorizing half of a balloon and holding on to it like it's dear life. I could probably go to my my home and find a Bible covered with dust because it's been sitting on a shelf. Because, I oh, that was my Bible I used five years ago. And I haven't touched it. And I think about the adversity and the tyranny and the persecution that still exists today. And yet the question is, 
What's the response to that? Now, we can't go and change an entire nation. None of us can. I can't expect anyone here to go and change the entire cultural mindset of North Korea. But what I can say is live in a way where tomorrow you could change one life. Live the next day where you can impact one life and one life and one life and one life. And watch what happens to the world around you here. It will change. It will change dramatically. So Joshua is a man who's going to walk with God. He was a man who had the roughest and the most undesirable of beginnings. And at the very beginning of this book, in chapter 1, he's 85 years old. He's 85. We have no excuses to serve Christ. He's 85, and now the work is going to begin in his life. He's 85 years old, and for the next 25 years, he is going to battle He's going to fight in war for 25 years and then die. The work in his life starts at 85. The call of service starts at 85. So if you're 12, if you're 17, if you're in your 30s, if you're in your 50s, if you're in your your 60s, there's no excuses. The Lord has something that he wants to do with each and every one of you. He has a desire for you to be part of a plan that he has orchestrated from the beginnings of the foundations of this world. You're involved with his plan of redemption. Talk about a humbling thought. You are part of his plan of redemption because you have an opportunity to reach the people in your life and communicate and express and show them the gospel, which means you have a hand in the redemptive story. And that is an amazing, amazing thing to think about. So he's 85 years old and his service to the Lord starts. Now obviously we'll, we'll, we can learn and we can look back through Exodus that he's been doing things for a while. But his position as, as leading, as kind of the example, as the guy, starts at 85. Joshua and Caleb are, are the only two of the older generation that are going to enter into the promised land. They remembered what it was like in Egypt. They remembered the miracles that came. Probably being somewhere between 45 and 50 years old, Joshua was there on the night of the first Passover. And that stayed with him. Could you imagine being there the night of that first Passover? Watching the miraculous hand of the Lord sweep through those nations and watch what he did? He was there. This man has been trained in ignorance. He had no idea what the Lord was doing behind the scenes. He was a slave in Exodus 1 through 12. Then in Exodus 17, we see him becoming a soldier. In Exodus 32, he becomes a servant to Moses. In Numbers 13, he becomes a spy that goes and looks at the land. And in Deuteronomy 31, and now Joshua 1, he becomes the successor. He never dreamed just that by being obedient and faithful to serving Moses that he was going to be trained for the battles of Canaan. That he would see the walls of Jericho fall down. That he would see the sun and the moon stand still in the valley of Ajulon. He probably never dreamed of those things. He never dreamed. He was just being faithful. He was not striving. He was not put off that he wasn't in charge. He wasn't going around saying, I want the title. I want the position. He was just being faithful. You can read in the wilderness years, most of his life was spent standing outside of Moses' tent. Moses was in seeking the Lord, and he just stood outside faithfully waiting for whatever Moses needed. That's what he did. He waited. Faithfully waited. 
And now's the time when the Lord is saying, I need you. He was a man that was under authority. He was a man that knew he had to serve before he could lead. If you think that you want to be in a place of leadership, you have to learn what it means to serve first. We can look at in Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve just like we must serve first. Joshua was first a servant before he was a successor. So that brings us to the beginning, verse 1. Now, some of your translations might say, and after. Some of it just might say, after. Go back to original text. And it says, and after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. So it connects right in with Deuteronomy. It connects right in. The last three verses of Deuteronomy says, but since there was not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, with whom the Lord knew face to face in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent to him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all of his servants, and in all his land, and by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of Israel. And after the death, it connects right in. It doesn't say how the Lord spoke. Just as he spoke. We are assuming here that Joshua is in the plains of Moab. And at this point, there's been at least 30 days since the death of Moses. The nation has been in mourning. Joshua, back in Deuteronomy 31, received an exhortation from the Lord that he would lead the nation and be a strong leader. It's in Deuteronomy 31. The verse is, one more page. Verse 8 of 31 says, And the Lord said, He is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. The Lord is saying, He's the guy. He's the man. I'm sure it was hard to remain strong in those 30 days. The nation just lost their leader. Just lost their person, their, their face-to-face encounter with God. The man that went before them and, and was the propitiation, was, the, was petitioning for the people before God. He's gone. What do we do now? Joshua lost his master. Those 30 days must have been difficult. Not only difficult in the fact of the, the sadness of the morning, but also the weight now of the leadership. Who would like to step in and fill Moses' shoes as a leader of the nation? Not I. So he, he's dead. There's a mourning. There's a loss. And on top of that, God's saying, oh yeah, Joshua, you're next. So now Joshua's got to carry that weight. He's got to carry the weight of the death of a friend, of a loved one. And now the weight of the leadership of these millions of people. Verse 2, it says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. This is, a lot, this is a time where a lot of things are changing. A lot of stuff's going on. Now the question is, do you like change? Or are you a creature of habit? We all like our, our, the comforts of life, right? 
I've been talking to a few people as we've been settling in, and as we settled into our home here, Nicole and I, we did some math, and it was kind of, it was a little alarming, but at the same time, we're like, all right, Lord, this is your life, not ours. So we've been married 15 years. Our oldest child is 11, and this is her seventh home. Our second child is nine, and this is his seventh home. Our third child is five, and this is her fifth home. And Joshua will be three in June, and this is his third home. We are not stable people. You talk about change, I love change. I'm okay with change. When we moved here, I moved a family of six people from Eastern Europe to New Jersey with 15 pieces of check luggage, and that's what we own. You know how nice it is to say that's what our belongings are in this world? It's kind of nice. But at the same time, that's it. That's it. I will say this. The hardest thing to do in all of that is to decide what doesn't come with you. When we left hungry, what doesn't come? What didn't make it? Those are the hard things to hold on to or to let go of. But that's when you say, all right, Lord, it's yours. It's not ours. If you want to give it back, you'll give it back. One for for Nicole, because she is a mother of all mothers, in my opinion. The hardest thing for her was to get rid of the kids' books and the games. The chutes and ladders, the candy land, those things that she would play with her game, with her her friends. Those games, not friends, with her kids, that she would sit down and she would play and make the memories. Teach Joshua the colors and the numbers and all that. Well, because the Lord is the Lord and he's pretty amazing. While we were there packing, we had a dear friend, actually she lives down in Spotswood. She came over and she helped us pack. And as Nicole is sitting there in tears, deciding what do I bring and what do I leave? Our friend was sitting there making a list of everything that she left. And when we got here, they were all waiting for us under the tree when we got here. Every game that she had to give up, every memory that was tied to those games, the candy land, the shoots and ladders, the everything, they were here waiting for us. Why? Not because we have a good friend, which we do, but because the Lord is amazing. And the Lord knows what he needs to do to assure his people that he's involved. That he's there. So yeah, these 30 days of mourning were difficult. This change, this transition, all this commotion, difficult for anyone. And yet the Lord is still speaking. The Lord is still present. The Lord is still actively involved in the lives of his people. Just like us today. There's no more Moses. There's no more manna. There's no more pillar of fire. There's no more cloud. No longer dwelling in tents. They're getting ready to move into cities and houses. Everything that they have known for a, for a generation is changing. Everything they know. And yet, the Lord is with them. Joshua, his name, what does it mean? Yahweh will help. Savior. He's an Old Testament type of Christ. Now, I like the fact that his parents named him Joshua as a slave in Egypt. As that mom and dad are being slaves, being whipped and beaten and being treated like not even dirt, lower than dirt. They named their son a redeemer. Because they have hope that their God will redeem them and he has. And what a beautiful picture we have here. Moses always represents the law. Always represents the law. And I will tell you this, the law cannot take you into the promises of God. It can't. The law cannot. Grace can. The gospel can. And the fulfillment, the fullness of the gospel is found in Christ. Or as an Old Testament picture, Joshua. 
So that is what is going to take them into the land of promise, not the law. We all have our own Egypts. Egypt, we know biblically, is a picture or is a, is a reference to the world and the, 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 the worldly pleasures around us. And you know, one of my mentors always said, you know, would always joke, the Israelites would be like, they got onions and garlic in Egypt. We're eating manna. Yep, they got onions and garlic. Sounds nice. But is it provision of the Lord? No. So we all have our Egypt. We all have those things in this world that we're like, can I really let go of that? Can I really walk away from that? Can I really say God is enough and greater than this? We all have that. Sometimes it changes throughout the years. Sometimes it stays the same throughout our whole life. But we all have the things that we are always, always not only tempted, but we're always challenged to let go of for the gospel's sake. It's like, ah, I'm comfortable with this. I don't want to completely let go. And sometimes when we think the Bible calls us to live a surrendered life, sometimes when we think of the word surrender, I always ask the question, what what comes to your mind when I say the word surrender? And, you know, the white flag, the giving up. And it's like, no, no, no. He doesn't want to give up. He doesn't want us to give up on life. He doesn't want us to surrender and give up. He wants us to surrender and give over. He does not want you to give up on life. He wants you to give over your life. And as you give over your life, he gives you back so much more that you can't contain it. You can't handle it. If you think you can outgive God, try him. Malachi tells us that. It's one of the only times scripturally where he says, test me, try me, challenge me in this. Then I will not throw open the storehouses of heaven and fill you with such blessing that you are unable to contain it. Give over to him what is his and watch him pour out blessing. Joshua has to give over, has to give over Egypt, has to let go of what that was. Let go of the pillar of fire, let go of the cloud, let go of the dwelling in the tents, let go of those years, that generation in the wilderness. And say, God, I'm giving that over to you and I'm expecting blessing. I'm expecting more in return. And guess what? God's faithful and he will. Without the Lord, we fail miserably or we exceed even more miserably. Without him, we will fail miserably. Or without him, we will exceed even more miserably. And we're going to learn if you can go through the rest of the Old Testament from Joshua to the end. Some miserable years in the life of the Israelites because they're trying to do without God. Canaan, the promised land, it's again, it's a picture of the promises that God has for us. As Christians, we are to live, we are to walk in the promises of God. The children were to be led into their promises by a divinely appointed leader. That's for us. His name's Jesus. Not under the law, but under grace. Now, those of us, all of us, walking with Jesus, does that mean you have no struggles in life? Does that mean you have a boring life? Does that mean you have a dull life? I love working with young people, and they're like, ah, oh, Christianity's boring. I'm like, really? Well, in my boring Christian life, I've been in 42 countries. In my boring Christian life, I've lived on multiple continents. In my boring Christian life, I could go on and on. You're right, it's boring. Walk away from it, not a problem. But when we give things completely over to him and we live in those promises and those fulfilled promises, talk about an exciting life. Talk about experiences that we could never imagine. Talk about opportunities that we didn't think were fathomable in this life, but yet God wants to bless us with them. You and I, through the power of God's Holy Spirit, have been enabled to lead victorious lives in this present world. 
we can experience blessing. We can experience fulfillment today. And this world wants us to think that it's impossible. This world wants us to think that you have to go by the world system to experience blessing in life. Give it up. I look at the Israelites and it's like, what did they walk into the promised land with? All that they could carry, nothing else. And yet the Lord blessed. And the Lord gave exceedingly abundantly all that they could think, above all that they could think or imagine. In this first chapter, we're going to see if we get through it all. We're going to see that God is going to tell Joshua to go over the Jordan. He's going to tell them that nobody is going to be able to stand in front of him. He's going to tell them to divide the land among the tribes, to receive an inheritance. Now we need to understand something about the Jordan River at this time. At this time when they were crossing, it's at flood stage, which means it's about a quarter mile wide. It's overflowing its banks. They crossed it at some of the times when the river was moving at its quickest, the current was at its strongest. And yet the Lord said, go, do it. We can look at the physical world in front of us and we can come up with every excuse of every obstacle that we could think of to not take a step. And God is saying, no, 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 no. You and your family, you and this people, go. I love it when God gives simple callings like that. He does it as well over in in Judges 6 with Gideon. Go. That's the call that he placed on Gideon's life. Go. Go in this might that I have given you. By your hand you will basically free the Israelites. You'll defeat the Midianites. Go. He's telling them here, go. Matthew 28, go. Go and what? Go and make disciples. Go. Simple, simple commands by our Lord. We complicate them, don't we? We complicate the simplicity of the gospel. Very simple. Go. Walk over this river. Now what I find very interesting, look at verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, that promise, just so you know, it was back in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 24. That was the promise to Moses that every, everywhere their foot stops or everywhere their foot touches, they will give to him. But notice a specific word in verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. One word in there, have, past tense. It's already done. The Lord's already done it. They just now need to be faithful to walk in his fulfilled promises. Past tense, it's already done. When I read things like that, when it's already, again, past tense, have. He's already done it. The work's already done. The hard work's already done. Now they just have to, in a sense, get over themselves and just trust God. And sometimes that's the hardest thing that we can do as people is to get over ourselves. Faith, evidence of things not seen, substance of things hoped for. Sad reality is people want to be able to touch faith. Well, I can't touch it. My brother grew up in the same house as I did, grew up in the same church, everything. He's walked away from the Lord for a simple reason. He would say it's simple. He would say, I cannot follow, wait, let me go back up. I cannot rationalize faith in a tangible banner. I can't touch faith. Thus, I can't follow a religion that is based upon it. That's what he says. Now, he's a religion professor. He knows this better than I ever will. He can read it in in the Greek and Hebrew. He knows Aramaic. He knows the languages that Abraham and Moses spoke, Uraic and Syriac. He knows stuff that nobody in this world cares to know about, but he does. He's an academic. But it's a textbook to him. 
And since he can't touch faith, he can't believe in it. Well, guess what? There's nothing that these people can touch. They just have to step out. They just have to move. They just have to walk. So what is he going to give to them? As far as the wilderness, verse 4, and the Leb- as far as the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea towards the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. All right, let's put that in perspective. Number one, the great sea that's mentioned, that's the Mediterranean Sea. So Mediterranean Sea, River Euphrates, Lebanon, the wilderness. The area that this describes is roughly 300,000 square miles. The area that this describes is roughly the size of Texas. Now, what did I say that current Israel is the size of? New Jersey. Small size difference, isn't there? Under David and Solomon was the closest that Israel ever had to actually claiming the entirety of the promised land. They never did because they never fully stepped into the fulfillment of the promises. We're going to learn as we, as we look at Joshua, as you go through the rest of the book, that the Lord is very clear. Drive out all the inhabitants. Get rid of all the people. They don't. And they never fully occupy the land of promise. But what this verse is describing is the size of Texas. And they settled for New Jersey. I hope you don't have Texas-sized promises in your life and you're settling for New Jersey. Oh, there's so many fun things with that, huh? (laughs) But truly, the Lord has big things for you. He has big, big things for you from before the foundations of this world. Don't settle for less because you can't get out of your way. Cross the rivers in your life. Verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. He's saying, I'm not going to fail you. It's very clear. It's, I, mean, I would love for God to speak to me and say, I'm not going to fail you. Whoever stands before you is going to fall. Basically, you win at life. Just go. That'd be awesome to stand and hear that. Joshua did. God does not say that there's not going to be battles. He is saying that he will not forsake us in those battles and that we will have victory in those battles. The same promise here is the same promise made to us. John 16.33 guarantees one thing in this life. What is it? Tribulation. Guaranteed. You will have tribulation. But, you can't forget the biblical buts. But, I have overcome the world. That's what Jesus says, right? You will have tribulations. There will be aspects of this life that are difficult, that are hard. But I've already won, so don't worry about it. Follow what I have to say. Follow my game plan. Follow my playbook, not your own, and you will win. That's the promise of the Bible. Now, when we get into hardships, when we get into tribulations, when we get into difficult times, we go into panic mode, the red sirens are going off in our head, and we freak out, we forget God, and we try to get ourselves out of the hole, and we end up that we just get deeper and deeper and deeper. Until we get so frustrated with what's going on around us, we say, God, where are you at? Because this isn't what you promised me. And he's like, I'm here the whole time. Turn around. Repent. Do that about face and come back. And then all of a sudden it looks really easy and you feel like the hero, like, man, I turned my life around. And God's like, no, you just started living my life, not your own. 
Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. David and all of the things that he had been through. If anyone had reason to complain against God, it was this man. All of the victories, all the defeats, everything that that man went through, all the ups and the downs, all the, the hidings and the depressions and everything else that man went through. Psalm 18.35 says this, You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. Your gentleness has made me great. God is a God of immense power. He laid out the heavens with a span of his hand. One, uh, one teacher said, I like the imagery, he said this, he goes, from his index finger to his thumb is the distance across the universe today. He laid out the expanse of the heavens with his hand. His power is unimaginable. When we see a lightning storm, when we see the Alps, when we see the Rockies, when we see his creation, we can only stand there in awe of his marvelous power. It's in his gentleness that he has made us great. And look here, God is kind of stooping down to Joshua. No one's going to stand before you. If they do, they will fall. And I will not fail you. He will not fail us. He will not fail you. Verse 6, be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. So, be strong and of good courage. Joshua actually hears this five times. Back in Deuteronomy 31, up until now, he hears it five times. And I would say this, repetition reinforces. Repetition reinforces. Repetition reinforces. What does repetition do? Yay! You win! Guess what? He consistently and constantly had to be told to be strong and of good courage. What does that tell us? That tells us that he probably wasn't that strong and full of courage. That tells us that he probably had to be reminded of the strength of God and the courage that he had in God. Be strong. Why? He is going to be responsible for dividing the land and giving the inheritance to the tribes that God promised them. Talk about a weight. He is going to be responsible for the, for the dividing of the promised land. God could have given the promised land to the, to, the, to the nation just by snapping his finger, by sneezing, by doing whatever he wanted, yet he chose to use Joshua. And he gives it to them portion by portion, piece by piece. God in his wisdom gives us things one piece, one stop, one blessing, one step at a time. I got asked the question all the time over in Hungary, how do I know what God's plan and God's will is for my life? And I would say you faithfully complete step one and he will faithfully show you step two. You faithfully complete step two and he will faithfully show you step three. It is a step-by-step, it is a progressive revelation. If God were to give you the playbook of your life, who needs God anymore? But if he only shows you one step at a time, that means you've got to look to him for that one step. And then before you can take another step, you have to ask God, what's the next step? What direction do you have me, are you having me going in? Right now I'm going to my left. Are you going to turn me around? Are you going to have me go to my right, keep going straight, turn backwards? Where am I going? He gives us one step at a time. Same thing here. Cross over. Cross over. 
Don't worry about anything else. Cross over. He didn't tell him everything that was going to happen. He didn't tell him all the stories of the book right now. He just said, cross over the Jordan. Walk across. One step at a time. The land of promise is going to be a land of testing. There's going to be faith involved. We're going to see the actions of the priest throughout the, the, the book. There's going to be a battle of consecration for all of us. It'll be in the plains of Gilgal. Before entering into any battle, any battle, we have to remove, we have to have the cutting away of the flesh. Before we go into any spiritual war, we have to remove ourselves, remove the flesh. We're going to learn that the primary victory lies with him. Joshua is going to learn to do one thing. He's going to learn how to battle on his knees. He's going to learn how to seek the Lord first in everything. He's going to learn that the physical battle is a secondary battle. That the first battle is whether or not he's going to seek the Lord. And if he seeks the Lord, he wins. If he doesn't, he loses. We don't fight in vain, beating the air, but we press on to a higher calling in Christ. Philippians 3 tells us this. Philippians 3, 13-15 says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, one thing, forgetting those which are behind and reaching forward to those which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. We press on. What do we press on to? Christ, period. We press on to him. There are challenges that face us every single day. Every day. And if we forget that God, what God has promised us, if we forget that God is leading us, we will give in to those trials, to those tribulations every single day. If we simply obey, guess what? It all works out. Now I would say obeying is, is simply complicated. It's a very simplistic direction and we complicate it and it becomes simply complicated. He is honing us. And we are very complicated individuals. We are not just flesh and bone. We have a spirit. We have a soul that God is refining. That God is changing. That God is purifying. That God is leading. And God is teaching. And sometimes we have to go through the plains of Gilgal more than once to remove the flesh. Sometimes we have to cross many Jordans just to watch him be faithful time and time again. To strengthen us in our faith. Verses 7 to 9 say this. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Once again, strong and courageous. Reinforcing the repetition there. And what do we see in these verses? We, we see a, a repeated phrase, to do, to do, to do. 
God is basically saying, I'm giving you my word not just so you can have it, not just so you can debate about it theologically, not so that you can decide if you're an Arminius or a Calvinist, not just so that you can argue your eschatology. God is saying, I'm giving you my word so that you can do it. The Bible demands action. It demands action. So you can walk, so that you can obey, so that you can live properly according it, according to it. That is where we find ourselves to be in the place of blessing, of subduing, of occupying. Not just knowing the word, but doing the word. James talks a lot about that, doesn't he? Faith without works is dead. You're not saved by your works, but because of your salvation, you should have works. We don't lack in our lives for knowing. We lack for not doing. And he's encouraging them here. You've got to do something with this. And verse 7 says, all the law, to do according to all, all the law. And he says, do not turn from it. Why? What's the reason for not turning? So that you can be prosperous in whatever you do. So that you can have guaranteed success in whatever you do. You want to have guaranteed success in life? Do what this says every time. You win. Why? Because God already won. Do what this says and you win. Does, I, does it mean that you, will, that, that you win immediately right at the drop of a hat? No, but you will eternally. In the world we live in today... Are we watching the news? Are we watching the culture? Are we watching the things that are being thrown around in the political arenas? Are we being tossed around by the thoughts and the opinions of man? Or are we being tossed around by the thoughts and the intents of the heart of God? Whose opinion is dictating the way we live more? The anchor in the evening news or God Almighty himself? There's many opinions I love that you know, we read about God speaking to his people in the still small voice, that whisper. And in the calamity and the, 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 the yelling of this world, how easy is it to hear a whisper? It's very difficult. It's painstakingly difficult unless we are intentional to seek him out and to listen. My kids have learned if I want to get their attention, I talk quiet. And they're like, Dad, I can't hear you. It's like, oh, good, you're going to listen now. It takes effort. It takes an awareness. It takes a desire. Are we desirous enough of him that we're going to shut out the rest of this world and only listen to a singular voice? Those are questions that that are so difficult at times to answer. Because there's so much going on that we, we have loved ones that we want to be involved with and all this, all this stuff going on in this world. All this stuff at all times. But yet are we willing to say, world, pause, mute, God only. That's it. It takes us being strong and courageous for us to enter into the things that he has promised. Because it will be against the tide of this world. You have to be going against everything this world says. But be strong and courageous. Matthew 7.13 says this, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. 
Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Taking the easy road as opposed to taking the high road. You will always be in the minority. Always. We are to be evangelizing. We are to be sharing Christ with all of those around us at all times. Guess what? Believer and non-believer alike. One thing that I found to be one of the most amazing things in the world is when you preach the gospel to a believer, how refreshing that is to hear the gospel message to a saved person. It's the most refreshing thing you can hear. Why? Because it's the source of eternal life. Sometimes we think, oh, I've accepted Christ in my life. John 3.16, pack that away, I'm done. I'm sorry, pull that out every day if you can and read it. Every day, because every day that is the source of life. And if we forget that, we become robotic Christians instead of relational creatures. Verse 8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. This book, Joshua is realizing that he doesn't have Moses anymore. He doesn't have that oracle that he can just say, what's God saying today, Moses? He's got a book, though. You have the same book. He has the scriptures. Like I said earlier, Joshua is the first person on earth who is being charged by God to conduct his life and actions by the written word. He's the first person. That's an amazing thing. I think he wins on the one-up stories. Oh, yeah, well, I'm the first person to follow the Bible. Oh, you win. You win. He's the first man on the planet who's told to conduct himself wholly by a book, by a text. But that puts us in the same place as Joshua. We are to conduct our lives by a book. Same thing that he was told to do. It says to not depart. What does that mean? It means don't tell stories. If you have the chance to sow something into someone's life, let it be the word of God and not your own opinions. That's what that means. If you have the opportunity to speak into someone's life, speak the words of everlasting life, not the words of fleshly opinion. Speak the truth. We're told to speak the truth in love. And truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. And sometimes Christians can be the most brutal, hypocritical people out there. Because we think we know better, we think we are better, we think we do better. And so sometimes we speak the truth, but we forget the love. Or sometimes we're so focused about loving people that we bring no truth. The gospel is already an offensive message. Don't offend it more so by going and living contrary to it. Live it out. And it gives us a time frame. It's day and night. Sometimes we say, we're so busy, we, didn't, we don't have time today to read the Word. I don't have time this week to, to, to do my devotions. Devotions to me is a funny word. This is a soapbox moment, so it's okay. So, devotion. If we're a good Christian, how long do we spend with our devotions? 15 minutes, 30 minutes. I mean, if you're a super Christian, you're like 45 minutes to an hour. But like a half hour, like, all right, that's like, you know, that's a sitcom worth of God. That's a good amount of time. Now, let's actually take that word devotion in that time frame and apply it to a different aspect of our life. I love my wife. I would consider myself a devoted husband. 
Now, in my devotion to her, if I only talked to her for 20 minutes a day, what would that show about our marriage? I would be ridiculed for being a horrible husband, right? Yeah? Why are we okay then saying that 20 minutes with God is showing him devotion? Why are we saying that 30 minutes of our day is showing devotion to to this man? If I would be appalled at only talking to my best friend for a half hour, why would I be okay only spending 15 minutes with him? Is that devotion? It's one of those things, again, that's not something to beat you over the head with, because guess what? Today, all right, devotions, check. What is, wait, check? A check mark of my time with God? Now, what does that mean? That means I mentally and probably spiritually put God away for the rest of the day. Like, I I got my time in. I'm good. Time out. It says pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Now, how many of us can remember the phones that actually had a line connected to it? What does that mean? Pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean that you're in a closet only talking to God 24-7. It means that 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 phone, that receiver is always connected. Always connected. So that as soon as you need him, he's there. As soon as you say, hey, God, he's like, yeah, what's up? Always connected. Always present. That's praying without ceasing. It's having a a consistent and continual conversation with God. Always. In your heart, in your mind, out loud. Always. A devoted life is a holy life, right? What's holiness? I break down holiness very simple. I'm a very simple person. I have to oversimplify things or I don't get it. What's holiness? Holiness is this. If I am to live a holy life, what does that mean? It means when I go to bed tonight, I am closer to God than when I woke up this morning. Tomorrow, when I wake up, I should be closer to God when I go to bed than when I woke up. That's a holy life. I did not specify how much closer to God I am, just that I am actively pursuing closer to God. It could be a half of a baby step, but I'm still closer to him. Every day closer. Every day actively pursuing him. That's a holy life. And how do we do that? By not letting this depart our life day and night. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not for the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Interesting that it says prosper there and it says prosper here. It says, for then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. What is it? How? By not letting it depart, by meditating on it, by doing it. In everyday daily activities, our minds can be on the word. That's what it's talking about. It's having a biblical answer for someone. Not having Bible verses to to shove at someone, but a biblical answer. An answer that can be supported biblically. Every day, all day. If Joshua had time to take heart this exhortation from the Lord, we do too. We say we're busy. Well, guess what? He had two million people and an army and a country to conquer. Are you busier than that? I don't think so. He had to lead two million people, and yet he had time. So do we. So do we. Verse 9. This is going to be our last verse for tonight. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage? That's the fifth time. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. 
Do not be dismayed. Why? God's with you. Guess what? Do not be dismayed because God is with you today. I love thinking of the, the omniscience and the omnipotence of God. And sometimes I'll mess with people's heads and I'll go, put your, try to wrap your head around this. God was here with us now tonight before he said, let there be light. Now we can go, yeah, I get that. Really try to break that down though. God was here with us tonight, right now, before he said, let there be light. That's true omniscience and omnipotence. Everywhere at all times, knowing all things. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will always be with us at all times. In all of our struggles, in all of our battles. And guess what? That's the key to alienate fear. Knowing that he is with you. Not only that he is with you, but he has gone before you. How many times in your life do you try to fight for victory over something? Man, I just want to get victory over the sin in my life. You're fighting a battle that he's already won. You're fighting for victory instead of looking to the victor. You're doing work that he's already accomplished on the cross. So you don't need to fight for victory in your life. You need to surrender it over and say, God, help. You've already beat this. I don't need to fight anymore. You just got to be my savior, my redeemer, my friend. Psalm 23, 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And in this world where depression and anxiety seem to be blowing up around the corner of everyone all the time, has something going on. I will not marginalize or put down those that need genuine help, but I will say to the believer, read Philippians 4, 6, and 7. What does it say? Be anxious for nothing. Have anxiety for nothing. But in all things, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So don't be anxious for anything and talk to God about everything. In verse 7, And let the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. In the New Testament, there's four types of peace. This, and the peace of God, is a peace that humanistically we cannot understand, we can only experience. We cannot comprehend the peace of God. We can only experience the peace of God. And it's the experiential peace of God that guards our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus. Isaiah 26.3 You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I look to a, a, a Christian who has no peace in their life. It's where's your mind at? I will completely say there are valid times where, guess what? There are, there are medicinal and mental hardships in life, yes. But there is also a God of comfort. There's also a God of comfort that can give wisdom to doctors and, and other professionals to help. But he is also a source of comfort. And he has given wisdom to, to have people be healed in many ways, but he is still that God. So have anxiety over nothing. Talk to God about everything and let his peace be what guards you. In Christ. The presence of the Lord. The consciousness. The awareness of his presence. The remembering of his promises. The believing that he is with us. No matter the circumstances of life. There's the key to alienate fear. And stress. And to seek seek out peace. Again one of my pastors would say. No peace. No word. Man I just need peace in my life. Okay. It's right there. It's, It's here. Go seek it out. It's there. 
Go seek him out. It's there. Now, sometimes we use peace and we use it in a, in a wrong way. Oh, it's okay, Pastor John, my, 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 my girlfriend and I, we've, we've prayed about it and we have a peace about moving in together. Wrong peace, not peace. Wrong use of peace. If it's not biblically founded, it's not biblically true. But we have the word of God just as much as Joshua. We have the promises of the word just as much as Joshua. We have more than Joshua had. And look what he did in 25 years of fighting. He claimed the physical promised land. Now we can make the argument he didn't make it all the way through. It's all right. There's grace, right? What can you do in your life with the full counsel of God? What promises in your life can you fully claim and fully occupy and fully conquer by fully trusting and believing in him? I truly, truly hope that none of us in this room settle for lesser promises because we're not willing to get out of our way or do the work. Because he has great things for all of us. Now we could say, I got eternal life. Isn't that enough? You tell me. That's eternity. What about now? How do you want to live now? What blessings do you want to experience now? And how do you want this life to look in eternity? Now we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And if that's all you're looking for, that's all you'll get. But I hope and I pray that you seek out the promises of God in your own life. And not only do you seek them out, but you surrender your life over to Him. Daily, devoting yourself, not just for 15 minutes, but daily giving yourself over and saying, Lord, my life is yours. What do you have for me today? If He wakes you up tomorrow, He has a reason for you on this planet, which means He has a purpose for you on this planet, which means He has called you to do something tomorrow. Start your day by asking, God, why am I here? What today do I have to worry about? Because he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about next week. Don't worry about next month. Don't worry about six months. They got enough problems of their own. Today, he has reason. So today, if you haven't asked, before you go to sleep tonight, say, God, why did you wake me up today? Why did you put breath in my lungs and blood in my veins? And did I fulfill that calling that you have on my life today? And if not, let's do it. And fulfill those promises today. Let's pray. Lord, I love that your word is challenging. I love that your word is convicting. I love